you just all sang, our hope is in you. And to the degree that we mean that, we meant that, what that means is that, that we have no hope outside of you. It's not, our hope is not in masks or the government or uh, the, our bank accounts or our common sense, none of that. Our hope is in Christ. It was, it was great just to, to hear that resonate out this morning. Well, this is part four of the series, Many Ethnicities, One Race, One Savior, part four, and the, the final part. I promise that this is the last part in this series. Next week, I'll start a 30-week series on COVID-19, so if you'll bear with me, I'll do that. Um, actually, I'll be in Galatians 4 uh, next week. We've been anchored in a uh, little bit of Galatians 2, primarily Galatians 3 here. But I have to say, I have learned a ton through this series. And if, if you've missed some of them, they're all, they're all online, video, uh, uh, podcast, MP3, that sort of thing. And I've just learned so much, you know, trying to understand more than I did before, biblically, uh, culturally, the other uh, um, resources and viewpoints that are out there. So hopefully you've benefited. And this morning we finally get to the last point in our outline, which is one in Christ. We established one race, the human race. Everybody agrees with that. Uh, liberal, conservative, they all agree on that amazingly. One sin, we're all in Adam's sin. There's one instructor, which is the law. We looked at this last week. We have one Savior. We have one Father, which I, I presented last week as is I think one of the, the core uh, parts uh, theologically to solving the, some of the race issues, fatherlessness especially, and now this morning, one in Christ. And of course, this comes right out of Galatians 3, the very end of it, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This verse, uh, if you're not from, as familiar with it, you have to trust me though, it is truly the crescendo of this passage. It's the crescendo of this uh, chapter, of, of uh, chapter 3. And in this verse, Paul lists three groups of people. You see them, Jew and Gentile, or Jew and Greek as it is, slave and free, male and female. And he begins with Jew and Gentile for obvious reasons because, to remind you, go back to Galatians chapter 2, Paul and Barnabas were guilty of ethnic racism because they separated themselves from the Gentile believers. They themselves, of course, were Jewish believers. They separated themselves from the Gentile believers. And I have been referring to that as racial division, and it was, clearly, because there was a racial uh, component there. But do not forget that fundamentally it wasn't a race issue, it was a theological, doctrinal issue. Because what was happening there is Peter was afraid of the Judaizers. He was eating with the Gentile believers, no problem whatsoever. The Judaizers came, he was afraid of them, so out of fear, he separated himself. So that theological problem, that doctrinal problem, as core as it was, then turned into a racial and ethnic problem. And by siding with the Judaizers, Peter was declaring, and this was the problem, that Christ's de death and resurrection was not sufficient. You've got to have Jesus plus these other things, Jesus plus obedience to the law. And we know Peter's problems, right? His other problems, 
Uh, and it wasn't that long before uh, Galatians that he had his problems denying Jesus three times. And what he did there uh, in this church was another form of denial. And had Paul not come along and had Peter not listened to Paul and the Holy Spirit's voice, he could have become another false teacher. He, he could have been, become uh, a problem himself. Now, if Peter would have fallen uh, and, and not to return, would the gospel have still gone forward? Absolutely, right? Uh, does, does God need you to accomplish his will? He doesn't, does he? His will will be accomplished, but he invites us into joining him uh, in accomplishing his will. And of course, that's the, the, the only place to be. That's the best place to be. So, so the gospel would have went forward without Peter, thankfully, it was just a momentary lapse in judgment due to fear. Fear of man, right? We talked about that weeks ago. Makes us do crazy things. Leads us down sinful paths. So this was fundamentally a gospel issue. It's a spiritual issue. But the result was that it led to racial division. In other words, bad theology can lead to racism. Which is what I've been saying all throughout this four-part series. I've identified racism as a theological problem, and I've offered theological solutions to the theological problems. Now, there are other issues, uh, other, other issues and other solutions. I, I mentioned a couple of those last week, but, but last time I checked, I don't have power over governments and economies and, and school systems, you know, in order to, to bring about some of those, but I can, uh, as one person, present the biblical solutions, biblical, first of all, uh, uh, identifying the problem from a biblical standpoint, and then, uh, then offering the biblical solutions. But I firmly believe that if the gospel were proclaimed and spread broadly, and the more converts that result from the spread of the gospel, racial strife will continue to decrease. Because if you understand and walk out these six doctrinal principles, racism cannot exist. It's impossible for those two to coexist. So Paul, as the crescendo of this passage, is identifying, as you see, three sets of people, uh, and all of them, they, they were chosen because they have an imbalance of power between them. I've been talking about that the last couple of weeks, right? This imbalance of power, that an imbalance of power by itself is not a problem. It's when an imbalance of power also results in an abuse of power. But for, in the birth of Christianity, there's an imbalance of power between Jewish Christians and these Gentile believers. Because at, at the beginning, it was all Jewish believers, right? Because Christianity was formed out, the Old Covenant uh, was, was Jew, Jewish. Um, the first converts were 100% Jewish. The apostles were all Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. The birth of Christianity, the spread of Christianity was all Jewish. So at the very early church, very first part of Christianity, you've got all, almost exclusively, uh, Jewish believers and very, very few Gentile believers. So you could say there's an imbalance of power. There is a strong, overwhelming majority culture within the early church. But that would change quickly. When Paul wrote, this is his first letter, remember the first letter of Galatians, first one he ever wrote. When he wrote this, the church was far and away a Jewish church, Jewish believers. But by the time he wrote his last letter to Timothy, it was predominantly a Gentile church. Uh, they were the majority culture. But that doesn't matter, does it? Majority cultures 
don't matter. Imbalances of power don't matter. All that mattered was that Jew and Gentile like were all one in Christ Jesus. The uniting of Jew and Gentile is most powerfully described, I think, in Ephesians chapter 2. So let me just turn there briefly. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, which as, if we, as we are unbelievers, that's who we are. I don't know if there's any uh, people of Jewish origin here. So if you're not, you are a Gentile in the flesh as an unbeliever. Called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time, listen to how bad it was uh, before we knew Christ, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. How do we get out of such a thing? But now, in Christ Jesus, there again, your identity, that's who you are as a Christian. You're one in Christ, you are in Christ Jesus. You who were once far off have been brought near how? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We see that, don't we? Uh, uh, Hostile dividing walls within our culture, sadly within the church as well. How did he do that? Well, he abolished the law of commandments, expressed ignorances. Why? That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, perfect unity, so making peace also that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It's a great passage. And there was obviously this serious division between Jew and Gentile, but from Paul's perspective, he didn't see that in racial terms. He saw that in doctrinal terms. The only difference was not uh, Jew and Gentile, but believer in Jesus and a non-believer. That was the difference. Now, Pharisees made it into a racial division, didn't they? And especially with the Samaritans, the, the, the mixed race. Uh, so they made it into a racial division, but that's not what Paul was concerned about. And the language here is amazing, isn't it? Jesus destroyed this dividing wall of hostility. Have you seen some of those lately? A dividing wall of hostility. He says that he killed the hostility through the cross. And the fact is, there's nothing in the universe more powerful than the gospel to unite races and to unite cultures. And remember, we are promised that at the throne of heaven, what's going to be there? People from every what? Tribe and nation and tongue, tongue and language. Now, are we there yet? I don't think we are. Otherwise, Jesus would have returned. Uh, the gospel has gone out into all of those tribe, nation, people, languages. I, I've uh, shared before, missiologists estimate about 14,000 people groups. Whether or not that's exactly right is beside the point. The fact is the gospel has gone out. The gospel will continue to be proclaimed and there will be converts throughout the world until there are people from every tribe, nation, people, and language united in Christ Jesus. Obviously, you don't get saved in order to defeat racism, uh, that would be foolishness. But one of the side benefits of getting saved is that racism should disappear. We've all had this experience where we're in another town and we're meeting believers for the first time. And, and what's, that, what's that sense? You know, you meet somebody and you, you have a conversation about the Lord. How, how does that feel? Isn't that great? You're like, 
I can't believe I've just met this person, and, and I, don't know, I don't know what job they do. I don't know their family history, but, but man, we are united in Christ. And then, even better, hopefully you've had this experience, you meet somebody from another country that speaks another language, hopefully they speak enough of your language to have a conversation, and you realize, I'm united with them as well. See, see the difference there is, you can say, biblically, theologically, oh yeah, we're one in Christ. I know we're one in Christ with all believers throughout the world, throughout all history. But when you actually experience it now, now you're feeling that unity in Christ. Worse, though, is when you feel strife and division among especially believers, which again is why we need to continually strive for unity. So that's the barrier between Jew and Gentile. The next barrier is, it's a little different than the first, and, and Paul said here there's neither slave nor free, but even those categories of people are one in Christ. Now, this category of slave and free, boy, that's, that's loaded, isn't it? Uh, in our 21st century culture and, and what's gone on the last couple months, and you th- you're like, oh my goodness, so we're going to talk about slavery here, uh, and much of the discussion the last couple months goes back to the blight in our nation's history, doesn't it? And it goes something like this. People say, you know, if slavery was such an evil in our nation's history, and it was, how then can we preach that the gospel unites slaves and free people? I mean, why does the Bible even talk about that way? Why shouldn't we be fighting against slavery in all its forms? See, if understood, if not understood properly, a verse like this could convey the idea that the Bible and therefore Christians either condone slavery or don't actually care about slavery. And this is what skeptics and atheists will attack Christianity. They'll, they'll take verses like this and, and they'll try to lay blame at our feet and say, again, you don't care about it or you may actually condone slavery. But, but still, atheists and skeptics ask that question, but we should ask the question because it's a good question. It's not a bad question. Uh, again, right? Difference between healthy doubt and unhealthy doubt. Remember the difference? Unhealthy doubt is just a, a really good question that you never resolve and it, and it can lead you to further unbelief. But a healthy doubt is a really good question and you seek the answer uh, that can then, Lord willing, lead you to more belief. I would put this in the category of a healthy doubt as long as you pursue the right answer, right? So if you allow me, I'll give a few reasons why I am convinced the Bible does not condone slavery, but just the opposite. Uh, number one, slavery in the first century Roman world was, was very different. So, you know, we see the word slave and slavery and we, we immediately have blinders on and we only have one perspective. So uh, I'm going to try to help you uh, understand a little differently the fact that in Paul's day when he wrote this, the color of one's skin was irrelevant to this, que- this question. Uh, so most of this, uh, in, in the Roman world, about two-thirds of those in the Roman world when Paul wrote this, we're in some, some form of slavery or indentured servitude or bond servant. Uh, and it was a broad, broad range uh, within that. You know, anything from extremely harsh treatment, that, that went on all the time, to uh, instances where it's almost like a nine-to-five job, except you can't switch employers. You can't log on to LinkedIn and say, you know, I'm a little tired of working for uh, uh, Joe over here, and I'd like to work for Bill because I've heard he's got a better deal. You can't do that. Uh, you're, you're stuck uh, until at least the debt is paid. Uh, if you've got an abusive 
uh, master. Maybe you never get away. But a best case scenario is the fact that a, uh, like a household slave was, had a much better life than a free peasant. Because a free peasant was, you know, uh, extremely poor. So, so we're talking a lot of socioeconomic differences here as well. Uh, so sometimes it was much better than the average freed person. Uh, and many freed slaves would then go on to become uh, wealthier than, than some of the aristocrats that uh, were in society. So broad, broad differences from the most evil things to uh, things that look absolutely nothing like the slavery in our nation's history. Second of all, the Bible clearly calls abuse of slavery a sin. We see here in the Mosaic Law, Exodus 21, and see if this sounds familiar to you. Anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him, so that's, that's clearly chattel slavery from our, from our nation's history, kidnaps another, either sells him or still has him when he's caught, must be put to death. Similarly, in the New Testament, slave traders in 1 Timothy 1 are put in the same category as murderers and killers of mothers and fathers, the ungodly, sinful, adulterers, perverts, etc., uh, so slave trading is unequivocally condemned in Scripture. We also have to understand that the truths of the Bible are progressively revealed. Again, a clear example would be the gospel. The gospel is not clear in the Old Testament, isn't it? Uh, there, there are glimpses of it, and it, and it builds upon itself. And then, then of course, it's, it's uh, again, to use the word crescendo, Jesus is the crescendo. And then it's described uh, in the New Testament after that. In the same way, there's, there's lots of, of beliefs that are progressively revealed throughout Scripture. And, and slavery is one of them. Polygamy is one, right? Do, do you know of some people in the Bible that had multiple wives? However, how did it start? Genesis, the very beginning. One man, one woman. That's the absolute clear standard in Genesis. Deuteronomy 17 says, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. So there's a scripture there that would very clearly speak against polygamy. However, King David and most of the patriarchs had multiple wives, and God does not uh, strike them dead for doing so. So uh, what happens here, again, similar to maybe divorce, God hates divorce, we know from, from the Bible, but God tolerates divorce, but he's not endorsing it. Do you see the difference? Um, Pastor Sam Storms writes this. What this means is that Scripture is known to regulate undesirable relationships without condoning them as permanent ideals. Paul's recommendation for how slaves and masters relate to each other does not assume the goodness of the institution. Uh, so we understand there are many things that are described in Scripture but they're not prescribed or commanded in Scripture. So, so we need to understand the difference between those. Fourth, we must condemn any Christian justification of slavery. And, and we've seen that. We have to admit that people use the Bible, sadly, people use the Bible to condone and teach all manner of evil things and false doctrine. So no surprise they would use the Bible to try to promote slavery. Uh, here is uh, an 18th, uh, rather 17th, century uh, bishop in the Episcopal Church said this, around Sierra Leone in the neighborhood of Cape Palmas in Africa, a few natives have been made Christians 
and some nations have been partially civilized. But what a small number in comparison with the thousands, nay, I may say millions, who have learned the way to heaven and who have been made to know their Savior through the means of African slavery. Do you see what he's saying? Slavery's okay because all these people are now Christians. Now, it's good all those people are Christians, if true, but what a disgusting way to talk about the gospel, isn't it? It's just horrible. And that did go on. We have to condemn that sort of stuff. Frederick Douglass said this, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. So let's join others in condemning it in no uncertain terms. Lastly, Paul's teaching, I believe, laid the groundwork for the eventual, well, slavery has not been abolished, but uh, to, to begin to lay the groundwork for that. And listen to what Paul wrote. If you know the book of Philemon, Philemon uh, had a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus escaped. Uh, he uh, found himself in the presence of Paul and had this, this meeting. Now he's sending Onesimus, the former slave, back to Philemon, and he wrote this. For perhaps this is why that is Onesimus was parted from you for a little while, uh, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, Paul speaking, he's especially a beloved brother to me, Paul, but how much more to you? You've known him all these years, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Do you see the, the endorsement, the, both theologically and practically and relationally, that Paul is, is giving on behalf of Onesimus to Philemon? He's not a slave. He is your brother in Christ Jesus. A few more quotes here to, to round this point out. Christians at this point were a small, persecuted minority sect whose only way to abolish slavery would be to persuade more people of their cause and transform the values of the empire the way the abolitionist movement spread in the 18th and 19th century in Britain and, and eventually in our country. And by the way, the, and I love the fact that Brits beat us uh, to that. I think that's, that's uh, uh, commendable. Um, about 30 years behind, I think we were. So um, there you go. But the point is, you know, how are they going to change, these few believers, an entire Roman world, right? That, that's the challenge that that's representing there. Uh, what Paul's letters do is to bring us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery can only wilt and die. And then finally, what Paul does say leaves no doubt where he would have stood had we put the theoretical question of slavery's abolition to him. People are equals before God, and slavery is therefore against God's will. Now, with all that in mind, is, is slavery gone in the U.S. or in the world? Sadly, not even close. Lots of estimates I found. One estimate said 46 million slaves in the world. I had no idea that these countries had some, again, if you believe these statistics, if they're reliable, United States, roughly 60,000 slaves. And, and, you know, we, we, we hear about these things. And, of course, that's one of the reasons we support 
the Wood family in Thailand uh, with Zoe International, and that, that's all they do is uh, share the gospel with those who have been rescued from slavery in Thailand, and they're branching out uh, into working with others in the Philippines. And we had our Zoe walk last year, raised a couple thousand dollars, uh, additional money uh, to send to them. So um, sadly, it isn't gone. And uh, if the Lord, we, we can't, you know, as individuals, we can't be concerned equally about every possible evil in the world, uh, but there is uh, maybe the Lord would call you to be more involved in that. And of course, uh, many consider the abolition of abortion uh, to be equal or greater in our day uh, to that as well. I think though as we talk about slavery and, and free men, uh, it's fair to summarize Paul's slave and free dilemma very, not, not exactly by any means, but, but close to uh, rich and poor. The difference between like extreme rich and extreme poor because at its core, the slavery, especially in Paul's day, was a socioeconomic thing. And I would say that in our uh, country right now, that classism is worse than racism. And let me explain what I mean because, for example, if you, if you have money, the fact is you're just treated better. And especially in the courts and in the criminal system. Uh, for example, very clearly seen, I think, in uh, uh, those who, who have been executed, or especially those who have been released from death row. Uh, in our country, in 1976, the death penalty was reinstated. And since then, 170 people have been let off of death row because they've, you know, especially with uh, DNA evidence and so forth, uh, which is just astounding, isn't it? Uh, and who knows how many more might yet be let off death row uh, because of that. And I would guess that pretty much 100% of those people were poor, right? Because if they were wealthy, they'd get a million-dollar lawyer. And, and, and if they were truly innocent, uh, maybe they would have gotten off and not spent any time in jail. Uh, here's a uh, chart that shows the race of those who have been executed since 1976. Now, if you do, if you do the math, the uh, percentage of blacks is at least twice as high as it would be in the general population, which raises a whole other sets of questions that some of the, I sort of addressed in past weeks. So there's no doubt there's racism built into those statistics. There's no question about it. Uh, but I think fundamentally it's not as much of a race issue as it is a class issue. Poor people simply do not get this, the kind of defense and treatment in the court system as wealthy people do. Unfortunately, classism can also come into the church, right? It's all throughout culture. It can worm its way into the, into the church as well, and that's why James addressed it, didn't he? And he's not just talking about some, church, some Christians getting along with one another. This was in a worship setting, and he says, you know, uh, what if a rich man comes in and you say, oh, man, here's the best seat. You know, uh, uh, we want to make sure you're really comfortable. And a poor man comes in. Where does he get to sit? You remember? At, on the floor at my feet. That's gross. That's classism. That's favoritism inside the church in a worship service. So if it can happen in the church, it can happen anywhere. But even here, Paul reminds us that the gospel has destroyed these barriers as well. That the gospel declares all believers of equal worth. Therefore, our actions ought to reflect what is already true in the spiritual realm. Finally, the last category 
male and female. Uh, any controversies in our day regard to male and female and gender? Do you ever read anything about that? Ah, oh, it's a tough, isn't it? Between radical feminism, homosexuality, and mass confusion of gender roles have made the male and female issues into the most divisive issues of our day. But despite that, uh, uh, we first need to understand what was happening when Paul wrote this. Uh, in the first century Roman world, women, the difference between male and female, were very different, I mean, very similar to the slave and free thing, right? So the treatment of, of women... Uh, not exactly like slaves, but close enough, you can say, uh, they were really, really mistreated. But here again, Paul is not going after the Roman culture, is he? He's not trying to change the Roman world. Uh, he's not trying to correct the cultural beliefs and abuses. Uh, but, but again, how did Jesus treat women? Wonderfully, right? Uh, with such respect, women were instrumental in his ministry, they were instrumental in the early church, no question. So, the fact is, neither Paul nor Jesus ever tried to change the culture of servitude or slavery or the, the roles of women. But the mere fact that, that Paul put women and slaves on the sla same uh, uh, level as free men and men was nothing short of earth-shattering, especially in his day. We, we need to understand how incredibly... Uh, cross-countercultural, earth-shattering that was. Now, we have our own baggage, as I said, associated with these categories in our day, and we think, of, of course, men and women are equal. I mean, everybody understands that. It's obvious, isn't it? Well, it might be to you and me, but it was definitely not obvious to Paul's, uh, those living in the first century. But Paul declared their equality simply because they're united in Christ. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. Uh, the majority culture, the uh, imbalances of power, they did not matter. So Paul's conclusion is that one's ethnicity has nothing to do with who will or will not inherit the promises. Neither does gender. Neither does socioeconomic status. Now, do these distinctions still exist? Is there still male and female? Are there still imbalances of power uh, going on? Jew and all those exist, don't they? But it doesn't matter because we're all united in Christ. Uh, we're united in Christ with every person who generally trusts in Christ. Now I want to address the elephant in the room, or we might say the, the masks in the room, or no masks in the room. I'm convinced that if Paul write this, had been writing this letter in 2020, he would say, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, there's neither mask nor no mask. COVID-19 and mask wearing is the most divisive issue I've ever seen within the church. I'm not even worried about the culture right now. I'm talking about within the church. And I don't know what you thought of the email that the elders sent out and then my part uh, that went along with that. And uh, some might think me wrong that I haven't worn a mask up in, until this time. Some might think me crazy that just because Governor Evers said put on a mask that I now put on a mask. I don't, I don't know what, what you're thinking. But here's the key, I believe, and I put this in my email. 
if wearing a mask or not wearing a mask is elevated to the level of sinful behavior by itself, just by itself, we have nothing to talk about, right? There's no room for discussion. No, to use my concentric circle of certainty, right? If it's in the center of your circle, if it's a to die for matter, there's nothing to discuss because half of us are right and half of us are wrong. But as I say, I tried to say again clearly in the email, uh, even on neutral issues, we can quickly fall into sin, right? I mean, we, that happens all the time, right? If, uh, if I put too much pepper on the eggs, maybe Karen and I will have a fight over that, right? We, it, the smallest things can lead us into sin. How much more this incredibly divisive issue can lead us into all kinds of sin? You know, casting judgment on one another, and, uh, you know, calling each other sinners and holding these things in our hearts. And maybe, maybe we put out uh, things on Facebook that, that never should have gone out. Whatever it might be. The way we think and act and speak, uh, we can easily fall into sin. So, so my goal has been to help us to think biblically and carefully and lovingly. We need to be, pay such careful attention uh, uh, that as we fight for our rights, and, and we should. I, I really appreciate the elders had some really helpful discussions talking about what these laws mean and all the, the difficulty that's wrapped up in them and, and that we've got to be careful uh, that our rights aren't not eroding more and more and more. So to, to fight for your rights. No problem with that when it's done, again, biblically, carefully. But you can fight for your rights while you also lay down your rights. Now, for some of you, to fight for your right and also lay down for your right might mean you put on a mask. And that's, that's where I am. That, that's, that's probably the main reason why I'm wearing a mask in church right now. But some of you lay down your rights. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to put on a mask. I, I, I firmly believe that. But it might mean that. So may we continue to think biblically and carefully and lovingly. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but uh, you may have done a little more praying in the last five months, a little bit. I feel like my, my prayer life has, has had a little uptick. Uh, anybody say, no, man. I'm praying so much, I'm ignoring my family. I think I'm praying way too much lately. I don't think anybody's saying that. Anyone agree we should be praying more as a church? Absolutely. So for that reason, uh, next, not, sorry, not next Sunday, the 16th, I think it is, of August, we are having a prayer service on Sunday morning in our two services. So we talked about, well, we should do something more corporately as pr- for uh, regard to prayer. But if we hold on Sunday, Sunday evening, uh, those Sunday evening prayer services, you know, uh, in the old day, maybe, uh, people just don't come. So we want to give prayer a priority, putting it on Sunday morning, the, uh, the 16th. And uh, we'll be leading you in singing and confession and repentance and fundamentally just begging God to, to test our hearts and to turn our hearts toward Him. Amen? And uh, I love the fact how the Lord, I believe, sovereignly worked out that 
as we're talking about unity, and I planned this message weeks ago that uh, the most beautiful uh, symbols of our unity in Christ is the Lord's Supper. And uh, as we celebrate, I'm going to be leaving you some time for, for some reflection. Uh, but let me explain to you that we practice open communion. So anybody that uh, believes uh, in faith alone, has faith alone, in, by grace alone, in Christ alone, is welcome to join us in this celebration. So we ask that you come down the center aisle, take the elements, have a seat, and then we'll share it together.